City Life Church, good morning. So happy that we're all back together. So happy that we get to uh, worship our, our Lord and Savior Jesus together this morning. But if you're watching this video, we need I need to tell you that we have enacted our baby page plan. I know, oh gosh, come on Pedro. City Life Church, good morning. So glad that we can be together again. So happy that we're worshiping Jesus together, together again. So happy that we have this morning to dive in and to dig deep and go after these things together. The, if you're watching this video, it's because I'm here to tell you that we've enacted our baby page emergency plan. Uh, baby page is either here or she's almost here. She's on the way. And so we are, uh, I wanted to introduce to two more weeks of an interruption. I know this whole season lately has been about interrupting what we've been doing, partnering with what God has, uh, and this, this isn't necessarily the same, but um, it's been in the works for about nine months now, and so um, this is what we're going to be doing as a church. For the next two weeks, we're going to put our Deepening Our Soul series aside. We're going to say, hey, First and Second Peter, please wait a little bit longer, age a little bit more like a fine wine to bring this word to us later on. But now we're going to be listening to two sermons, one from Pastor John Soper and one from Pastor Michael. Pastor John Soper is my coach and my mentor in the season. He is one of the men that I, one of the people that I respect most in the world. He has been in ministry for over 40 years. He has been the CMA's field director for Australia. He has been the district superintendent of our district here for a long time and he even served as the vice president of our denomination he is someone that is greatly respected because the fruit of his life has shown that he loves the lord and he has pursued him for a very long time and so pastor soper is going to be preaching for us today and i'm so excited that we all get to hear pastor soper's heart and uh and what acts 9 means to him um, and I just can't be happier to, to bring Pastor Soper in to speak to our church. He's, he said he wants to come in person when we come back in person, but uh, this, this is good for now. I love Pastor Soper. Let, let's give him our hearts and our ears today as we worship him in the sermon. But also next week, Pastor Michael is going to take over, and he's going to lead us through forgive, another sermon on forgiveness, what forgiveness in Jesus looks like, how it changes everything about, about our lives, and how it just challenges our heart, um, and how God walks us through it. And so I'm so excited to hear these two words. Church, we will be back with First and Second Peter in two weeks. Uh, I just want to thank you all for your prayers and your support. We have leaned on this community, this family of ours. Uh, and so now we get to celebrate the birth of our baby girl. Uh, and so we love you. We miss you. We will be back together again soon. I can't wait for all of you to meet Baby Paige. And so we'll see you soon. And let's give our hearts and our attention to what the Lord is doing through Pastor John Soper and Pastor Michael. Thank you, guys. Good morning, City Life. My name is John Soper. And if you're seeing my face on the screen this morning, it's almost certainly because this week Anne had a baby. And we wanted to give Pedro and Anne the opportunity to just celebrate that reality and that new addition to their family. And uh, I'm jumping in to take his place for just this week. I need to ask you a question this morning. 
Has God ever asked you to do something that you really didn't want to do? Something that seemed very hard, maybe even unreasonable? Well, we're going to look at the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul this morning. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle. So let's take a look at the story, which is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how must he much suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized. So I want to go back to that question. Has anybody ever asked, has God ever asked you to do something that you really didn't want to do? Something that seemed very hard, maybe even unreasonable. Well, that happened one day to a lady named Cory Tenboom. I think many of you might know her name and something of her story. And if you don't, I would suggest that at the earliest opportunity, you download the movie that tells the story. It's called The Hiding Place. Well, Cory was the daughter of a devout Christian man and woman who lived in Holland at the beginning of World War II. It didn't take the armies of Adolf Hitler very long to overrun their little country. And when that happened, because of Hitler's hatred of the Jewish people, the soldiers started to round up all the Jews and send them to the infamous death camps. Most people were too afraid to do anything to try to help their Jewish neighbors. But the Ten Booms were devout disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew what they had to do. So they made a hiding place inside their modest home, and they hid a family of Jews, knowing full well what could happen if they were caught. 
For a long time, they succeeded, but in time, tracking down some irregularities in food ration coupons, the Nazis came. They searched their house, and the hiding place was discovered. The Jews they were sheltering did escape, but not the Tenbooms. Her father was sent to one camp where he died in just a few weeks. Corey and her sister Betsy went to another. Corey was the only one who survived the experience. Now, everything about the camp was horrible, like you've always heard. But there was one guard in particular who seemed to single out the Ten Boom sisters for special cruelty. And when her sister Betsy finally died, Corey knew that there was one guard's face she would never forget. The death camp was horrible, but Corey never lost her faith in God. After the war had ended, she knew that her nation and the nation of Germany needed spiritual healing. The Christians who had resisted the totalitarian demands of Hitler's regime needed to forgive the Christians who'd caved in and submitted to the Nazi reign of terror. And the ones who'd suffered needed to forgive the ones who stood by in silence and let it happen. So Corey began to speak first to small groups in churches and then to larger ones, a message of repentance and forgiveness. She preached the gospel of love, the gospel of Christ. But there was one face that she could never forget or forgive. Now, one night as she was bringing her message of reconciliation to yet another group of church people, she looked out over the congregation that had gathered to hear her. And her breath was literally taken away because right there in the middle of that crowded room, she saw him, that cruel, sadistic guard who had done so much to contribute to her sister's suffering and death. He was in the room listening to her. Somehow she finished her message and immediately she looked for the quickest escape route out of that building. She was in a panic. She had to get out without encountering that one sadistic guard. And she was almost out the door when she looked up. And there he was, standing right in front of her, tears streaming down his face, begging for her forgiveness. Now, she knew what she should do. She had just been preaching the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of reconciliation. But she did not want to forgive that man. Even more, she knew that she couldn't love that man, not even if she wanted to. It wasn't possible. And in that moment, the Spirit of God whispered into her heart, I know that you cannot feel love for this man, but as an act of obedience, you can take his hand. Forgiveness is an act of the will. In that moment, Corey Tinboom decided on a radical act of obedience. And she reached out her hand. She took the hand of her persecutor. And the most remarkable thing happened. God gave her the ability to forgive him. And from that moment on, Corey was truly free. For the rest of her very long life, Corey Ten Boom was used by God in a remarkable way to heal the wounds of thousands and thousands of people. Now, I don't think that I've ever been asked by God to do anything quite that hard. But in the passage that is before us this morning, this disciple from Damascus, a man named Ananias, he was. The Lord came to him in a vision one night as he slept and said, 
rise and go to the street called Straight. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Over the past 40 years or so, I've read that passage many, many times. I've preached from this passage several times as well. I've taught it too. But I don't think I've spent very much time ever thinking about Ananias. Because the spotlight in Acts 9 is on Saul of Tarsus, the man who will shortly leave his Hebrew identity behind and go by the Roman name of Paul. This is his conversion story. And it's without question the most dramatic conversion story recorded in the book of Acts, maybe in the history of Christianity. Ananias is just a bit player in the cast of the story. He's got an important role in the sense that he's the one who lays hands on the blinded zealot. He's the one who extends the gift of forgiving and the gift of healing. He has a few lines in the play and then he's gone. Barnabas will have a much more prominent role in the rest of the story. Silas will too. So will Dr. Luke and Timothy. We'll meet them again and again as we follow the story of the Apostle Paul. But Ananias, well, with him it's one and done. And after this paragraph, he disappears forever from the biblical record. We never hear from him again. This morning I want to think for you, with you for a little while uh, about this man, Ananias. And the very first thing we need to understand is that Ananias was an ordinary Christian, not very different from you or me. He's identified merely as a disciple at Damascus. Now, I never noticed that before. He's not called Ananias the Apostle, or Ananias a leader of the church in Damascus, or Ananias the deacon, or even, like Philemon, the house church leader. He's just Ananias, a disciple. He doesn't even have any special prominence. And we'll never see his name pop up again in the narrative of Paul's life. Not like people like Aquila and Priscilla. This guy's an ordinary disciple. He delivers one message of about 30 words, lays his hands on Saul, and that is it. We aren't even told whether or not Ananias is the one who baptized Saul. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul the superstar of the early church, the patron saint of every missionary and church planner who ever lived. But his career gets launched by the power of God working through an ordinary disciple named Ananias. And I think you can see what I'm getting at already. Whenever you choose to obey the Lord, you never know how that simple act of obedience might affect the life of the person next to you. And sometimes when we choose to obey the Lord, our simple acts of obedience unleash the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that end up changing history. God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work in the world. Do you remember the names of Shipra and Puah? They were the midwives in Egypt who refused to murder an infant, and that infant turned out to be Moses. I doubt they ever knew what their one courageous act of obedience accomplished. But we know they changed all of history. One of my favorite paragraphs in the entire New Testament is found at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
I've shared the passage many, many times. And I want you to learn the principle he's here and never to forget it. Brothers, Paul writes, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lonely things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. I can't say this any more plainly. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And he loves to do it that way. And you know what that means? It means that God can use you in all of your everyday ordinariness. God can use me. God can use ordinary people like you and me to change the world. Now, God wants us to be people of influence. That's all the more important because of how unique this region is. It's unique because of where we are and because of how diverse we are. My years away from the Metropolitan District only brought to me greater clarity, something that I said from the pulpit many, many times when I was here as a pastor and later as a district superintendent. It became kind of a mantra with me in the years that I was here. To change the world, start here. The story of Ananias shows us exactly how and where we can begin to do just that. That's because the second thing we know about Ananias is that when God spoke to him, he recognized the voice of God and he listened. Now, maybe that sounds a bit too basic to spend much time on. Of course, he recognized God's voice, you might say. God spoke to him in a vision. If God ever spoke to me in a vision, I'd know it too. Well, maybe you would, and I hope you would. But I'm not entirely certain about that. It took three calls and the coaching of the old priest Eli before Samuel recognized God's voice. And at least one other time when Elijah, the great prophet, was waiting for God to speak to him, he had difficulty in discerning that voice. You see, in the days before the scriptures were written down and collected into the book that we now call the Bible, one of the primary ways that God spoke to his people was through dreams and visions. And the other major way he spoke was through the prophets he sent, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah. The Old and New Testaments both contain accounts of God speaking to individuals like that. He's the very same God today, and he can still employ dreams and visions as a way of speaking to his people. Sometimes he does. But even before the end of the first generation of the early church, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were already coming together in the form that we now have them. And it was to the scriptures, including the epistles of Paul and Peter and James and John, that these disciples were turning to hear the voice and to find the will of God. In biblical times, without the scriptures as the word of God to turn to, God's people had to wait until he spoke in a dream or a vision or through a prophet. We are in an infinitely better place because we have in our hands the word of God to which we can turn any time we want to hear the voice of God. Now, in these days, his primary method of communicating with us is through his word. 
Here's the point I want to make. Unless you're regularly in the Word of God, seeking His direction for your life, and listening to His voice in the Scriptures He's given us, then I'm not sure you will hear His voice, even if He is speaking directly to you. And why would you expect Him to meet you in a dream or a vision with special directions if you haven't first been seeking to hear His voice through the Bible? Now, if your first response to me is to tell me that God has never spoken to you, then my answer back is that he has spoken. He is speaking, but you're not listening. Ananias was an ordinary disciple. And when the Lord spoke to him, he recognized God's voice. Now, the third and final thing we need to know about Ananias is that when he knew what God wanted him to do, he obeyed. Now, that wasn't easy. You want me to go see Saul of Tarsus? Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that. Lord, he's a murderer. He hates the followers of Jesus. He's here in Damascus on a mission to catch us and to kill us, throw us into prison at least. What you're asking of me is too hard. There were all kinds of reasons why Ananias might have decided not to obey. Fear would have been a very big one. If I do this, I might become the first victim. I could be the first one to get arrested for being a follower of Jesus here in Damascus. What if that wasn't the voice of God last night, just a bad dream? I could die. I'm sure that if I'd been in Ananias' place, I would have also considered public opinion. After all, the persecuted believers in Damascus were a pretty tight-knit community. Even if the voice that spoke to them really was the voice of God, no one else had heard it. And they weren't likely to be very enthusiastic about an Ananias making a house call on their dreaded enemy. They'd be afraid that Ananias might give them up, blow their cover, compromise the safety of the entire Christian community. And finally, think about the conflicting emotions that would be involved in accepting the greatest known enemy of the Christian faith into the family. <laughs> How would Ananias ever be able to forgive and accept the man who was in part responsible for the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr? In my 49 years in the kingdom, I've sometimes felt that God was asking me or telling me to do something that seemed very hard. I even remember very vividly worrying on the first night I gave my life to Christ that he might ask me to do something really hard like becoming a preacher. He did. And surprisingly, it wasn't hard after all. But I've never had to do anything as difficult as Ananias. So if I've been thinking about this account this week, I find myself asking a very scary question. If I had been in Ananias' place, what would I have done? What would you have done? When and if God ever asks you to engage in a, an act of radical obedience, how can you know whether or not, to put it in a different way, is there any way to begin right now to prepare for such a test?
Is there any way right now to stretch my obedience quotient? I, I think there is. I'm convinced that Ananias, like so many other of God's people, both before and after him, was ready to obey only because he had already obeyed God in the smaller challenges that he faced. It's a really important biblical principle that could be stated very simply in this fashion. If we're faithful in the small things, God will trust us with the bigger ones. Jesus said pretty much just that in the parable of the talents that he told in Matthew 25. To the servant who had been faithful with the talents entrusted to him, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. If I'm thinking correctly, that means that the way to prepare for the big challenges of obedience is to first be faithful in the small ones. And that leads us to a really important question that you and I must both answer right now. Is there anything that you already know God wants you to do that you haven't acted on yet? And now what you know what your homework can be for today. By the way, in my church when I preach, the people know they always get homework. So you can complete the first part of your homework assignment right now, even before the benediction gets pronounced. You need to answer a question. What is the one thing, maybe it's two or three things, that I already know God wants me to do that I haven't done? How am I going to get that thing done? Remember Corrie Ten Boom? She's standing there, nose to nose with the death camp guard, the one she holds most responsible for her sister's death. He's asking for her forgiveness. She feels nothing but hurt and anger. And the Spirit of God says to her, forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of the will. You can reach out your hand, and as she tells the story, in the moment she obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit, she was able to forgive. And a whole new day began for her and for thousands of others to whom she was able to minister. In the scripture, in the history of the church, there have been a thousand different times when ordinary disciples like Ananias of Damascus or Corrie Ten Boom of Holland have been asked to take a risk and engage in one radical act of obedience. And that's always the first step in changing the world. God is calling us to live obediently, to change the world. You got to start right here. Now, as you move into your missional communities, I want to pray with you. But uh, one of the things you might want to talk about in those missional communities today is this question. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do in obedience to the Word of God? And what happened as a result of that obedience? And maybe by sharing those stories, we'll be able to get 
to the other question I asked a few moments ago. What is it that God wants you to do right now? And you know it, and you've known it, but you haven't acted on it yet. What will happen if you reach out and in an act of radical obedience, you obey the thing that God wants you to do right now? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the power of your word, for the reality that we don't have to wait for a dream or a vision, though you can still speak to us that way, but for the reality that you've given us your word and it's full of promises. It's full of assurances, but it's also full of commands that we need to obey and that you want us to obey in order for us to become the Ananias of our time, of our community, of our world. Lord, make us people like Ananias with one simple act of obedience, change the world. Thank you, Lord. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.